Are you ready to go? Welcome back to Okashina Podcast Anime with Friends. I'm Sabrina, and with me is Dawn. No fancy titles, it's just us. In the new year, 2021, we survived 2020. Dawn, are you thrilled to be back? I am I am thrilled to be back doing this podcast. I'm especially excited by uh, our material for, for this podcast. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, I don't know if you wanted to comment on the political situation, but things are happening so quickly. Everything will be completely out of date by the time people listen. Yes, well, this is going to be Okashina Podcast's second year. Yay! And we have, a, we have a lot of other great stuff coming up, including new anime, new guests, and hopefully a lot of cool surprises that I'm saying very vaguely because none of it is set in stone yet. Uh, and this is all assuming, as Don just alluded to, that our, that our republic doesn't collapse and we're not thrown into a civil war. Ha 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 ha! Uh-huh. Uncomfortable laughter. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, but enough about that, Don. Uh, long break, our longest break so far. We took off all of Christmas, all of the holidays, uh, and most of the start of January. Uh, how was your break? You, I heard you got a PlayStation Five. I did, um, and I was. It was a surprise gift. I was not aware that uh, a PlayStation 5 would be gracing our presence. So I have to say I was very excited about that. And uh, You basically thought, proved me wrong because I was like, there's no way you're going to get a PlayStation 5, Don. And uh, you, I mean, as far as I knew you, that was right. <laughs> yeah, but there it is. There it is. Whoop, Whoop there it is. Uh, please, if you're going to do that, you must quote the entire song. As for me... I watched, and I'm not quoting the entire song. What do you? How much time do you think people are going to give us to get <laughs> through this banter? Time. Not that right. much time. I watched the entire Lord of the Rings series with my daughter. Um, this was her first viewing of it, obviously. She's nine years old. Uh, she loved it. And I grew a new appreciation for it because it is kind of dorky in a good way. But I love the way it tells stories. It's not like... I, I had this image in my mind that it was a lot hokier and cheesier than it is. And it does have some of that. And I think Peter Jackson is a little bit of a cheesy director sometimes, but like it, it really is about hope and it's about uh, these little micro and macro stories. So like there's this big battle going on, but they really focus on like a father son, like dynamic, like they'll like focus in on these little stories happening, but, but like within that, and it's such a refreshing change from like, I don't know, Star Wars, where it's all just some big dumb thing happening on screen at once. Um, not that I don't dis- not that I dislike Star Wars. It's just that like, it never reaches the like heights of say the Lord of the Rings in it, in the types of stories and tales it's trying to tell. Like it doesn't build across the the movies like like that. Um, Anyway, that was one of my highlights. That, that's interesting. I mean, I think people have been saying in hindsight compared to, say, the way that Star Wars um, finished out its its storytelling that um, 
that they looked more favorably back on these movies. Yeah, you know what it is? Um, when I saw Rise of the Skywalker, and then I thought about Return of the King at that time, because in a lot of ways they set up Rise of the Skywalker, or Rise of Skywalker, to be sort of a a like building up of the rebel alliance. Like the, the universe was going to come together. People from all walks of life were going to pick up a, a rake or a lightsaber and just go and fight for their freedom. And like, it really doesn't do any of that. And yet return of the King is so good. And, and, and the whole series is good. The whole Lord of the Rings is good because Aragorn, Aragorn, is it Aragorn or Aragorn? I forgot. Aragorn is like, uh, he when we first see him, he's been living uh, in the shadows because his his people made a fatal error back in the day. Isildur, you know, he he succumbed to the ring's power, and man fell, and uh, and his line was supposedly crushed and. Aragorn has lived among the people. He's lived among the he's lived among the elves, and he enters the story with nothing but his name, and the, the, really the name of his of his uh, ancestors, and his sort of like uh, his own will to to make this happen. And yet, by the end of the movie, he has assembled this amazing crew of people just by sheer by by his deeds by his deeds he does this and that's something we just don't get in those star wars movies it's funny because i i totally shied away from talking about star wars when we went on like a 40 minute diatribe last time but seriously i think that the storytelling in the lord of the rings is top tier well and also it is a wonderful story i mean i've been reading um the hobbit to my children and it's such a funny, interesting book to go back and read, especially after we've been through the whole movie cycle and everything else. It's really, it's it's a much more funny tale about yeah. sort of a, a, a bumbling creature. And it just sort of touched on this great world around it. And your your imagination filled in all the spaces. And I think you you lose that in the movie because the movie is trying to sort of create the spectacle for you. And I, you lose that imagination. I feel I, I did not want and have not had my kids watch any of those movies until we managed to plow our way through the books. That's good. Um, I, I don't know if you want to like, I don't think I would start with the Hobbit movies. <laughs> I no. think I would go straight to Lord of the Rings. And but they if have they to really the wanted first. to, they have to they read really the wanted first. to. Yeah. If they really wanted to, then they could go to the Hobbit because I didn't think Peter Jackson's The Hobbit was very good because it was just so bloated and so full of uh, things that just sort of killed the pace for me. Yeah, at least the plot is consistent all the way through and does not, like in, <laughs> in the last three Star Wars movies, whiplash you back and forth in right. ways that uh, are very surprising. All right, but back to our story here. Yes, yes, we watched uh, an anime. We're sort of following up with... Uh, Tokyo Godfathers, which we watched with Chris right before break. This is an anime series by Satoshi Kon, who is, we've talked about this, but he's a, he, he did some of the best anime possibly ever. Lots of very cerebral, very psychological, very paranormal kind of things, almost like a magic realism. This series 
is a 13 episode series. We're going to be covering one episode per show. We're going to be doing shorter shows in order to do this. Uh, I think it's a good way to go, though, because what this is, is basically it's an anthology series that is connected by a sort of overarching mystery, which is who is this strange boy on golden skates? What is he and how does he connect or how do these people connect to each other? And man, I just want to hear your impressions of just sort of dipping into this world because I've seen the whole series now. And uh, as usual, you are going episode by episode as we watch them. So I, um, as I deliberately do, went in with without any expectations. And I was immediately sort of enraptured by the, the opening with the, with oh, yeah. the characters laughing at you and the sort of um, schizophrenic flash where characters fragment a little away from their bodies um it's i think it's amazing or i thought it was you know it was very unsettling it was very i was like is this a horror movie is this or is this a horror-based show um and then we started watching and i mean i i i really like it um i think it's it's not like uh a lot of the other things obviously that one sees and that of course is the point of okashina podcast but i would <laughs> say um the, it's it's good storytelling it it yeah. sucks you in um it's it allows your imagination to fill in the details um of you know you you are kept as the name paranoia implies the characters are not sure what to believe and therefore you the viewer aren't sure well what's what's real here and what's not and i i was especially impressed by the what is the name of the doll the maromi maromi talking to me in the first episode but it was really not a big deal <laughs> no and it felt very much like we were in Tsukiko's. Tsukiko is the woman who invented Marumi. She's a character designer. Uh, we'll get into that when we talk about the plot very briefly. But I just wanted to say that like, sh- we're in her headspace. So she doesn't seem to think anything's weird about this doll just getting up and talking to her suddenly. But I want to, before we get there, you talked about the theme song. I mean, it, it's not just the visuals of the song. It's the song itself is sort of a wall of crazy is how I wrote it. Uh, it is called Dream Island Obsessional Park. <laughs> and like that cumbersome title, it is a lot. It's truly epic in scale. There are layers of sound. There's birds singing. There's like water sounds. Uh, even the vocals are very like, they're very, very muddy. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. It's not muddy. They're like, they're sort of fuzzy and out of... They're distorted. Distorted, uh, yeah. The, the sound isn't clear and, and it's, not a, it's not a clarion sound. It's, it's something is off. It's written and performed by Hirasawa Susumu, who has worked with this director before on many of his films. And he actually does not only... He didn't, he didn't only write the songs, he also performed them, both the opening and the ending. And the ending is also another song that you want to talk about because it's just this sort of drowsy, sleepy little like number where everybody's like dozing. 
are comfortably revealed. Well, I don't know. I don't know. What are they? What are uh, they doing, Don? I don't I, know. Well, I am very curious because it was very unclear to me what they're doing. But anyway, he does all the music for the series. So whenever we talk about the music, we can credit him. And uh, it's a very much a collaboration. You know how we talked about in uh, Your Name and Weathering With You, how uh, he, the director, uh, Makoto Shinkai, relies on Rad Wimps to sort of like interpret his script into music. Well, in this case, like the director gets inspired by some of the like music of uh, Mr. Hirasawa. And then he starts to like write to that sort of feeling. And then he brings him in and sort of like, they, they sort of feed off of each other. So I, I only watched one behind the scenes thing for this because there really isn't a whole lot on this show. Uh, but there is some extras that came with the DVD or the Blu-ray and I watched it and it was mostly the director and the music director kind of doing it back and forth about how they sort of like fed into each other's uh, creativity. Anyway, let's talk about the plot. So I said it was an anthology, but it's also sort of about this shared delusion or event that loosely connects several stories about people who are facing times of desperation. Uh, This anime is from 2004. It does, to me, feel like a product of its time. Uh, I remember sort of in the same era, uh, maybe a little bit before, I was watching things like Requiem for a Dream and uh, things that that existed in sort of a psychological space that uh, there... There is physical, something physical is happening, but there is also people talking about these events and this character, the, I think he's called Little Slugger in the English version. In the Japanese version, he's referred to as Shonen Bat. I like Little Slugger just as much, so I will refer to him as Little Slugger. But when they talk about Little Slugger, uh, there's sort of like an evolution of sort of a cause and effect thing happening. Do you get that? Like when they start adding details about little slugger, little slugger seems to change in the public perception and the way that we see him seems to change unless they suddenly have more information than we're being told. So it, it's almost like we're kind of like dancing a line between what's real and what's like actually happening. Would you agree with that? We're definitely um, in a situation where mental perceptions can change and the truth is reported through the eyes of our protagonists in the story. And as their perceptions change, ours can and will as well. There's, we're not, it does not appear we are third person observers dispassionately seeing the, the evidence. Well, I don't know if that's entirely true but I've only seen, you know, a couple of episodes as opposed to you. So I I would have, I actually consider it more of a thriller. Like this is, there is a mystery and we're trying to figure out what it is. Um, And. No, it's definitely that. It's definitely that. You're right. But things seem, things at, at this point seem still pretty grounded in reality. But what's to me, the name paranoia agent um, at the moment is reflecting the fact that, different parties have their own sorts of um, 
narratives and these narratives are disrupted by the very real events that are going on around them, but they are disrupted in ways um, that can be extremely unpleasant for them. Uh, full stop. Um, <laughs> so the Japanese title is Moso Dairini, right? So Paranoia Agent is one way you could translate that, but another way is Delusion Agent, right? So it's it is sort of about a, a dream that in it's without giving anything away, <laughs> like, yes, things are happening. Like it's not going to cheat you. The series, I'll tell you that things aren't going to be cheated, but it is sort of about this, this sort of public shared delusion that people have. And, uh, and I just want you to know that, as the story starts, we talked earlier about this when we got to the end, but our main character for episode one is uh, Sagi Tsukiko, or Tsukiko Sagi. She is a character designer who got really lucky, made this really cute dog that everyone loves, and it's, a, it's, like, the, it's like the most popular little character. This happens a lot in Japan. These little trend characters pop up like... Um, it doesn't even have to be a Japanese one. Like I remember I was there and Timmy was popular from the, <laughs> you know, the Shaun the Sheep world. Oh. Um, or uh, that, that egg, you know, um, the one with the naked butt, the, like the, lazy oh, egg. Guta, Guta I, Tama, I do remember I that. But, Guta Tama. I mean, we have, we, we occasionally have stuff like that here. We do. Everywhere that you, we do this kind of stuff. When you and, said Timmy first, I thought you were talking about South Park. Oh, no, that'd be so weird. But I don't put it past them to do that either. <laughs> Tsukiko's a very, like, shy, sort of withdrawn character. And it's clear that she's under some pressure to version, like, to make the next Maromi. She seems to be cracking a bit under that pressure. And one night when she's walking by herself, uh, she's walking at night and she passes a homeless woman and the darkness like encroaches on her and it, it feels very metaphorical. Uh, it's, it, it, it appears like, like she's being closed and penned in by the darkness and she's attacked by an assailant. And all we see at first is a shadowy figure sort of like smacking something at her. And then after that, she gets a lot of sympathy she gets a lot of attention. The cops come to talk to her and there's a slimy journalist who comes sniffing around her. I need you to know that her name, Sagi, means fraud in Japanese. Oh, so interesting. That is, um, that's built into her character. And the, the slimy journalist is called Kawazu, which sounds like sort of frog-like. And like his face is very like icky and sort of uh, amphibian like for some reason. He he has a super gross scene. Was it in episode one? I think it was. He has a super gross scene where he ties a a cherry stem with his tongue. Yes, that's right. It's when he's interviewing. Well, he smells the grift. He thinks. He, well, right. Like he's one very of convinced that this is made up. That she has created an event to. Um, divert attention away from her job responsibilities and garner sympathy or to draw attention to herself in a way that provides a great deal of sympathy and, and such. And so 
you're right. That was a an extremely disturbing scene when he and there's a close up of his hairy mouth, and he's like, oh he yeah, puts the whole cherry in there, and you're like, what is he doing? And then he ties the stem with his tongue, and it's like, why are you coming on to her? Like, what are you doing here? Oh god, yeah, it, it's preceded by him looking like doing an upskirt yeah. shot to try to see her panties. I was like, this is creepy for no reason. <laughs> why? What is, is this going somewhere? That's where my brain was at that moment. Uh, ultimately, I don't know if it was going anywhere by the end of this episode. Like, but basically, he was a creepster, and he was implying that he was going to either shake her down uh, to keep her secret, or he was going to sell her story big time and wanted her to like get in on the ground floor so that like they would both she profit. also yeah they all they both profited basically she was remarkably impervious to his advances though in in any way shape or form well it turns out that she has a sort of guardian angel in the maromi doll right yeah something I mean... preventing her from sort of like thinking too hard about these things or that's an interesting uh, turn of phrase that you use because well that can come up later but the but yeah the the i was i'm initially thinking that the doll is just her talking to herself and it happens to be manifesting as mm. the doll wandering around um and chatting with her maybe it is so what were your impressions of sukiko did you believe her? Do you believe her? So initially, yes, I do. I mean, the the alternative to not believing her is that she may have had a psychotic break, right? Because mm-hmm. she doesn't seem to otherwise like she's she does appear stressed, but not um, she doesn't appear to be very high strung as a person. So I don't sense her panicking per se. It's more this like. It's just like the deadline is going to get here and she just won't be able to deal with it. And and then I would I project from her interviews with the detectives who are somewhat skeptical as to her story. Like, how would she react in a similar situation where her boss is like, well, we promised this. Why is it not here? And her solution is not to, like, freak out, but it's just basically to not respond. Like, it's I don't have... She doesn't really have <laughs> yeah. any answer or any solution. So she doesn't seem like somebody who's going to have a psychotic break, per se. <clears throat> and she was right. the, the most anxious you see her is when she's sort of running away from the old woman. So when she's walking home, there's this old woman who she sees, and she sees, feels a little bit anxious about that. She trips, drops her things. And when she's picking them up, that's when this mysterious assailant shows up and bops her one. I want to talk a bit about that. I want to talk a bit about our mysterious assailant because at first the mysterious assailant, she describes it basically as he, he was just a a mugger, basically Um, a a fifth to sixth grader, which everyone is surprised by, but that detail of being in fifth to sixth grade, that the detail that it's a child um, with, golden shoes i believe she says at first the fact that it's a child and that it that she claims that they attacked her and it wasn't at late at night actually it was it was still during like the evening hours or the the the, the close to daylight 
Um, the fact that this happened with these details, it doesn't convince the world. The world is still like, no, that's not really what happened. I'm st- this kid's probably just messed up. And like, it's not a legend. There's no, there's not enough for people to grab onto. Right. But look what happens when they add the golden inline skates. Suddenly, people are like, oh, have you heard about Shonen Bat? Have you heard about Little Slugger? There's like this kid and he's got this wicked grin after he hits you with his crooked golden bat. Like, Although these we details... don't have the crooked golden bat yet at the moment. I mean, at least that isn't a detail that she, she mentions a bat. She does, the, the shoes right. are a very interesting detail here because in principle, she does not initially convey to the police that the shoes are, um, that the shoes are roller skates or inline skates. Right. She seems to be triggered by something. She, well, she's triggered when she's having her meeting with Kawazu. Yeah. Well, he's trying to pen her in. He's trying to like say, like, I know you didn't do it. I know you didn't. And he's like getting further and further into her face. And that's when she sort of like starts panicking. And then she, she hears the, what she thinks is like skates coming for her. Right. And then she, like she involuntarily flinches. And then that apparently is a new detail that is revealed to the police officers. Right. You're right. That at that point, the legend seems to grow a little bit. It's, it's, I mean, I'm not quite sure how this would make the evening news, but then, you know, this sort of stuff starts going around. Now, the the reason that I, at the moment, am more of a believer in this is that the second occurrence of Lil Slugger happens when Kawazu is again trying to corner um, uh, Tsukiko, and he's chasing after her. Again, it is a high-stress situation for her, but she is clearly moving away from him she is hobbled and is unable to move very quickly. And he is walking towards her and then appears to be hit from behind. So that would require a great deal of skill and ability on her part that she hasn't otherwise um, evidenced in any situation. I mean, she seems like a... Although you did say she had possibly a psychotic break, which could give her... un. Yeah, but that would require strength. that she is she's able to elude uh, Kawazu, get around him, knock him out. Uh, <laughs> Do you think she just went like, "Hey, look over yeah, there"? Like, there's no indication that they're speaking <laughs> at all, and you know, a flying fish. And we don't get to see you know how bad off Kawazu is. No, no, that's something probably you know, we can look at in the second episode as well, because there's two more victims in that episode that we'll talk about in our next episode. But to kind of wrap up this episode, uh, during this time, there was a lot of, you know, like, before the series came out, there was a lot of youth violence talk in Japan. I actually did my dissertation, (laughs) my, like, senior thesis on a youth violence uh, offender called Shonen A. They blamed anime and manga for the violence that he perpetrated against his victims. He was unrepentant. And the psychologists and the talking heads came out, just as they do in this episode, uh, when the word of 
the little slugger first hits the news. Uh, the experts come out and they're all wagging their tongues and they're all like trying to figure out the psychology of this thing. And like, they're, they're quick to assign like blame and stuff. What do you think of the final line of the episode where Shonen A, I'm sorry, Shonen Bat, little slugger looks at Tsukiko and he says, I'm home. I specifically do not recall that being the last line from the English translation. Interesting. What did he say in the English translation then? What he says in the English version is, hello again. Ah. So here's, here's the thing. There's a, there's a set phrase in Japan. It, it goes, tadaima o kaeri. So when you come home, you say tadaima, and the other person says, o kaeri, welcome home. So it means, I'm back, or I'm home, and then the other person says, welcome home. And that's what he says in the Japanese version. He says, tadaima. It could be hello again. It Hello again is nice because it implies that they've met before. I'm home also implies that they've met before. Uh, what's their relationship, Don? I, from the confines of episode one, I don't have a lot to go on. Um, no, you don't. So there's, there's clearly more, but... Uh, but you didn't think too much about it either, so... Well, I have to say... The hello again was a little weird because if the if the only way that you see somebody is by knocking them upside the head with a bat, and then you're like, oh, hello again. That's a, I mean, you are either a real psychopath or more is going on. And I think that Tadaima could play that way as well. So I don't think it, it necessarily gives any more information than hello again does. Yeah. All right. That is all for this episode. We are doing shorter episodes in order to sort of give you guys just chunks of this show at a time. Like rather than talk about two completely different like characters that are being examined, we're going to sort of cover episode by episode. So please join us next time and we'll get into episode two. Um, I... I'm so excited to talk about Beastars. It's not coming for a while in English, but I recently read the manga and it goes, it goes so wild. The world gets so interesting. The characters, the things they reveal about the characters are surprising to say the least. Um, And I'm excited. (laughs) And I have the theme song by Yoasobi Kaibutsu or Monster on repeat lately. So anyway, join us next time. Don, thanks for coming. Okashkoi koyo. What but that's what we're supposed to say, right? That's in the right? Okashkoi koyo! Didn't I didn't I do it right? Go to our Twitter. It's uh at Okashina Podcast, O-K-A-S-H-I-N-A Podcast. You can get all of our information there. Not going to waste your time. Okashikoyo! Okashikoyo. Perfect.